Stop thinking about the quality, just do something. Overthinking it is as bad as underthinking it. So Mark, I want to, want to once again thank you because this is actually the second um, interview you've done. You did an interview for my Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. So anyone who wants the full story of Mark and um, Netflix, etc., definitely catch up a bit of research on our first episode. If it's okay with you, Mark, we'd love to focus on recurring income and subscription income for most of this um, chat, if you like. Because sure. I think it's the now and the future. And let's be honest, Netflix pretty much opened the dam of the subscription model for pretty much everyone else to follow. I mean, now you can drive Volvos on subscription. You don't even have to buy the car. You can just subscribe <laughs> to Volvo. People get their food delivered, uh, you know, fresh in these fr sort of freezer bags. And you can cook your fresh every day, food every day on subscription. You've got Amazon Prime, You're all of this stuff. So this is a massive world. And I think Netflix opened the door. And also why you think Netflix squashed Blockbuster. <laughs> well, you know, listen, if, if, when we started in 1998, so, you know, 23 years ago, the thought that this company would be squashing Blockbuster would have been ludicrous. You know, Blockbuster was uh, 7,000 stores. They don't, you know, they had 60,000 employees. They were a $6 billion company. And we were a dozen people in an old bank building with dirty green carpet and we stored the DVDs in a safe. So the idea that that would one day be disrupting video, ridiculous, but that's okay. You got to start someplace. And at the time, our goal was just to be as big as a single blockbuster store, uh, which is, helps you get a sense of what our aspirations were. And there were 7,000 of those stores. So, but you know, we did have a couple of things um, going for us. You know, one is that Blockbuster was hated. Uh, the stores didn't work very well. The staff was surly. They had those late fees. We also were starting from a different direction that they were doing VHS cassettes for the most part. We decided we would basically try and do an end run. We would do DVDs, this little round flat plastic discs, if people don't remember what those things are. Um, and which gave us a couple of years where Blockbuster was not going to do that. And that was our start. But fundamentally, the way we were going to disrupt a business was basically we're going to try and do something totally differently. And the thing that ultimately broke uh, through was doing subscriptions. We all of a sudden came up with this idea. It took us a year and a half, so don't get the impression that this was springing out of your mind. It took a year and a half of trial and error, but f eventually had this idea that we should do video rental subscriptions where you could rent as many as you want for one recurring monthly charge. And then had this other crazy idea that we would let people keep the movies as long as they wanted. There was no due dates, no late fees. When they were done, they would send one back in. And But that doesn't tell you why eventually Blockbuster got trounced. And that's a story of big companies because the Blockbuster folks were smart. I mean, they could see what was happening. They could see that this little teeny company actually had something that customers liked. But we were still tiny. You know, we were maybe $5 million a year in revenue. And so for Blockbuster, they had to make this decision. Do they launch their own? And if so, how much resources do they put behind it? And their answer was zero. 
they put their, not their A team, not their B team, but their C team on it. They never really resource it properly because their feeling was we should take our best people and put them on our main business, which is doing $6 billion a year. Why am I going to take my best engineers and put them on this division, which if it does well, could be $10 million a year. And that's the fate that befalls every large company. That's why I'm so excited about being an entrepreneur. Disruption is, I want, it's not going to say easy, but it's always possible because the things you do, most big companies are unwilling or unable or scared to do. Is it true um, Netflix have about 193 million users? Do you know how many they have now? 200 and change, 207, 200 and something like that. It keeps going up so fast. Who can keep track? I wish my subscription membership so would go up that much. <laughs> and um, do you know what their average subscription amount is? Because I think they have a couple of levels, don't they? No, I think they're, uh, I think the average is less than $10. Maybe it's nine. But again, don't ask me. I don't keep track of, I don't keep track of the, those metrics. Sure. Um, Mark, the creator economy. So, you know, the idea that all of us, myself, all of the people that follow me, yourself, we can create our own subscription platforms. Social media have monetization tools now, supporters and stars on Facebook, badges, YouTube premium, Luminary, Apple and Spotify premium for podcasts. Literally every channel now, you can have one or two or three different income streams. What do you think of the creator economy and how the world's going like that? I actually, I'm really encouraged. You, you referenced it a few moments ago, but when we, when we tried subscription business, which is a year and a half in at Netflix, it was not being done any place. It was being done with magazine subscriptions. Maybe there was book and record clubs, but that was it. And so kind of when I look back, at what some of the big contributions that Netflix has made. One, of course, is you know changing how video is consumed and created. But it's also, as you said, it is the fact that we really demonstrated that there could be other uh, other things. So I've we've seen subscriptions going every place, and for good reason. I mean, for one, there's certainly a huge advantage in the fact that you can make the effort to acquire a customer, and then have that customer continue to pay you for month after month after month. There's also a contract between you and your customer, which says, I don't necessarily need to be on for every single interaction we have. All I have to begin thinking of is cumulatively, over time, am I providing value? And it allows us to take, as creators, to take risks, to try things, to begin to make judgments about what may or may not work and not be always thinking of, I have to be doing something which in this very, very moment is enough to have them pay me for it. From the business perspective, what I really like about uh, subscription businesses is their predictability. And that what predictability does, two big things. One, investors love it. So it allows you to monetize, to actually raise money more effectively. But the other wonderful thing about predictability is that you can begin changing the amount of time and money you spend on acquiring a customer. Before, if I spent $10 to acquire a customer, his very first and only transaction 
how to get me back more than $10. But now if I know this person is going to be paying me $3 a month for three years, you know, that's a hundred dollars of a value. So now maybe I could spend $20 or $30 or $50 acquiring that customer. And I think that's changed the way that we as creators market ourselves. We're willing to take a longer view. We're willing to spend more to acquire a customer than we get back from them in that very first interaction. I love that, Mark. And, you know, the fact that um, you don't have to have a massive capital outlay as well. You reduce your upfront capital outlay um, as a consumer, for one, um, because don't buy a Volvo car, subscribe to the Volvo subscription platform. Um, and definitely like the idea of tracking the lifetime client value and being able to pay more than you get for the customer on month one or two or three, knowing that you might have three years subscription. So before we come back to the subscription, Mark, um, I must admit, and I shouldn't say this, and you and Netflix do not care, but I remember when Netflix started, I thought there's no way this is going to work because it's buggy. You know, you get the, the round circle of death coming on and your internet's a bit jerky. And I, I just didn't think that would work at the time. Clearly, there must have been huge tech issues getting really good streaming and deliverability on streaming at a time when you launched, when streaming was a bit buggy. How did you overcome that? Well, first of all, the, the Netflix had a major advantage. Uh, well, they had, they had a number of them. But the first one was for those first 10 plus years, maybe 15 years, Netflix didn't envision itself as being an entertainment company. We were essentially a software company. We were headquartered in Silicon Valley. Most of our staff was engineers. We knew how to manage engineers, lead engineers, motivate engineers. And as you're correct, you are correct that in the early years of streaming, yes, you do have to generate good content, but to get that content to your customers in a reliable way, that's an engineering problem. And that is one that Netflix was uniquely suited um, to solve. Unlike coming from the other direction where you're, for example, a Hollywood studio and you're remarkably good at managing talent and figuring out stories, but you're starting out fresh and figuring out how to overcome the technical challenges. So that's one large advantage. The second big advantage for Netflix is that we launched that company in 1998 as a DVD by mail company. And it was that type of company for nine years. If you wanted a DVD for the first nine years until 2007, well, we we're going to have to mail it to you, which gave us seven, nine years to begin building out all the other technology we would need. How do you manage subscriptions? How do you manage acquisition? How do you manage customer's account? How do you keep track? How do you get your metrics right? And so at the time we entered streaming, that was just one piece of a very, very large and complicated company. The other pieces of, we already had nine years of experience doing well. So we were able to focus on that one piece of it. And then the last one, and this is one that's applicable to everybody, whether or not you're in streaming business or not, is from day one, we've been an extremely customer focused company. We've always paid tremendous attention, not to the economics, not to revenues, not to profits, but to, are we serving individual customers? 
That's part of the DNA of the company. They, we have meetings. There's always a symbolic, not literally, but this considered an empty chair where the customer is sitting. So as you're trying to solve it a question, you would always be asking, in this case, what would the customer want? And as you started this off by saying the customer wants reliability, and we realized that that was a critical thing we had to provide and stay focused forever on were we providing what the customer wanted. And that's tricky because customers want to watch on different brands of television. They want to watch on different pieces of technology. They want to be in different parts of the country. They want to be on broadband. They want to be on and making it work across all of those platforms was something that was a high, high um, strategic um, goal of Netflix. Yeah, from an outsider's point of view, it, I just think that's where you nailed it because it wasn't long before it worked really well and really reliably. It's funny because, you, Mark, you're talking and I'm thinking, I remember when we used to receive DVDs in the post. It sounds so ridiculously slow now. Yeah, isn't um, it crazy? But, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I think probably most of my student debt was late fees, by the way. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Right. Mark, a lot of my community are quite up for starting their own subscription platform. So what tips can you give them on starting, you know, a, a, basically a content platform and getting subscribers? Well, obviously, the first thing to do is you have to start. Don't, don't study the problem forever. Don't try and design something you know in advance is going to work. Because if you've gotten to the point you know in advance it's going to work, you're probably too late. Probably someone else is doing exactly what you want to do. So the best thing about subscriptions is it's yet one more of those things where you can iterate your way to success. So if you're sitting there and obsessing about, do I do it at $6 a month or $3 a month? Do I do it on my own or do I do it through a platform? Try something. Put something out there and see what happens. The beautiful thing about subscription businesses is if some customers don't like you and don't sign up because they didn't like your offer, learn from that and try something else. If, like I said before, once you have subscribers, don't feel oh, I can't experiment because they're expecting a certain thing. That's not true. You have a longer term relationship. You have to recognize that if you try things that people are upset about, you may have to go back or make address it. But my feeling is always be trying things, always be testing things, always be challenging yourself. And if you don't start, um, you'll never uh, get any place. All right, there's my, there's my inspirational uh, high-level bullshitty kind of pitch. The specific <laughs> thing I'd recognize, I'd recommend, is that sometimes you have the opportunity to do various degrees of commitment. In other words, do you offer someone a free month? Do you offer them a free week? Do you say, no, you pay up front for a year? Oh, no, you pay up front for three months. And so I'm going to recommend something tactically, which may seem counterintuitive. Go for the option that gives the customer the most degree of flexibility. Not necessarily because it's customer focused, because what you want to understand is as quickly as possible whether you're doing a good job or not. So when people do things like put things on, you pay a month, pay a year in advance, or you pay six months in advance, or, or you're committed. Uh, you go, isn't this great? Uh, look how many customers, look at the cash flow I have. 
The problem is then all of a sudden you get to three months or six months or a year where their term is up and they cancel and you go, what's wrong? And they go, well, this has sucked since the first month. I just didn't have an option. You want to have someone have the opportunity to say no quickly because that's the best indicator you can have of whether you're delivering value to them or not. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Now, Netflix mastered scale. Um, you know, 200 and odd million users is unbelievable. Um, so two questions, because I think this is important. Number one is, did they build their own platform or did they use an existing platform? And then number two, how did they scale so quick? How did they what? The last piece? Scale. How did they scale so quick? Sorry, I probably should have asked them separately. That was terrible interviewing from me. Um, no, you're, question you're doing one. A, oh, no, you're doing a great job. Don't worry. You're doing great. Um, Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's, it's actually very interesting. Is When Netflix started, they did it themselves. They built their own systems. They built their own servers. They served their own content. They began to try and solve. They solved that problem on their own using their own technology. Partly that was because they thought it was so important that they wanted to own that infrastructure. Partly it was because there weren't a lot of options for them to rely on. But then something very interesting happened. Netflix began to realize that there were people better suited than them to solve the problems of massive infrastructure and scaling. And so Netflix then transitioned not too long afterwards to using Amazon. Netflix was one of the first large scale customers of AWS because what they recognized is they said, AWS's business, their entire business, is building scalable, reliable architecture for serving content. And let's form partnership with them. We will then focus on the things that we need to be great at, managing customer expectations, providing great content, and Amazon will be the ones who serve the content. And it, what's happened now is it's evolved into a hybrid model so for example, Amazon still has a huge role in providing this global infrastructure and serving content out, but also Netflix is providing technology which sits closer to the customer at cable companies, for example, where they'll cache all the most frequently watched movies so they can be served from a point close to the customer. And that still has to be replenished uh, from a global perspective. So it's a hybrid model now. It's pretty, really a fascinating thing about how Netflix has been able to build not just a, a capacity which is able to handle 200 plus million subscribers, but do it on a worldwide basis. Yeah, really interesting. So the second question, um, how did Netflix grow such a big membership? Give us sort of maybe a two or three tips on scaling up your member base. Uh, there's two, the first thing is that we never sit still. We're always recognizing that customers don't really care what we did in the past. They don't really care about what our current issues might be. 
they just have the expectations that we can provide them something they want. And as that changes, Netflix has to be comfortable changing. And this goes all the way back to the beginning at Netflix. For example, you know, even a year and a half, a year in, less than a year in, you know, we were selling DVDs as well. Uh, in fact, we were selling, mostly selling DVDs. We were, had about 98% of our revenue came from that because we couldn't get rental to work. And we recognized that if we were going to get this right, we had to focus on the thing which we thought was the most important was rental, walked away from everything else. This happened again when all of a sudden we had two businesses. Then it wasn't rentals and sales. Now it's we have a streaming business and we have a disc business. And we recognize we have to focus on what the future is. The future is streaming. Any decision, it gets optimized for streaming, even if it hurts our DVD business, even if our DVD business is bigger than our streaming business. We have to invest in the future. And the content, all of a sudden, expectations of customers is that you can deliver proprietary content, not just serve up better things they can get other places. So you have to reinvent yourself once again and become a studio. So the quick answer is, always willing to do what's right for the future, even if it comes at the expense of the present. We are willing to cannibalize ourselves in order to get it right for what the future customer is going to want. Um, and that, that goes back in a way to a question we talked about before, which is we we're talking about tips for people doing recurring income businesses, which is that people get scared. They have, I'll use a simple analogy, simple example. So they're charging $10 a month and all of a sudden they realize, uh, or it, you get some certain value and all of a sudden you realize this is not what's right for the future. And they're scared to change because they go, oh, we can't upset our current subscribers. No, that's wrong. You have to be willing to say, I'm sorry to your current subscribers. Let me make some big efforts to make this right for you. But for the future, I have to do this, even if it's going to hurt you. And sometimes when you do these tests and you try things and you have customers on strange plans, you have to go to them and say, we're discontinuing that plan. I'm sorry. I know you love it, but I have to focus on what's right for the future. It's interesting, Mark, that you said, you know, Netflix were prepared to cannibalize themselves in the present for something bigger in the future, despite it might be small, small now. Completely the opposite to Blockbuster, who were unwilling to do that. So that's that's really interesting. It's like continually disrupting yourself. Um, if I, you don't disrupt I, yourself, someone else will. I say that all the time. It, 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 I can give you dozens of examples of companies who who don't recognize that and listen it's not necessarily because these companies are stupid uh but you get locked into a business model i i did this um project with this large company it was a manufacturing company you know it made a product but and they sold it uh through this multi-channel multi-step model where you sell to distributors and the distributors sell to retailers and the retailers sell to customers and because of that you have to mark the price up a lot. It's very expensive, but everyone's happy until this new company comes along with lesser product, but they sell direct, straight from the manufacturer to the end user. So they prices are about half. And the big company sees this happening and goes, oh, no challenge here. 
we have a better brand, a better product, and way more money, we'll do our own direct-to-consumer division. Obvious answer. Until their head of sales hears about this and goes, you're going to compete with me? You're going to make my job harder? Well, I'm out of here. And then, of course, their biggest distributor calls up and goes, you're going to compete with me? You're going to undercut my price? Find yourself a new distributor. And of course, then the CEO is going, whoa, whoa, sorry, and we won't do it. And uh, because they don't want to cannibalize their present. Because it's huge to grow this teeny little division. You have to be willing to lose a 30-year business. But the customers don't give a crap. <laughs> you know, They don't care about your distributor. They don't care about your high-priced salesman. They go, I can buy this product almost as good for half the price. That's what I care about. Did you nearly say fuck there, Mark? You oh, no, I, 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 I said, don't, don't give a shit, I think I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> it's a, totally fine, by the way. So, um, right, tell you something that fascinates me, Mark, and surely everyone who's going to build a subscription platform, the price sweet spot. Was there any logic or was it just random testing in the Netflix model, which I think everyone recognizes the lower fee, higher volume, but of course, then they're creeping it up. Yeah, no, it's obsessively tested. Uh, it's fracking. It's basically being willing to do these tiny little tweak changes because the volume is so big that even very small adjustments can have huge consequence. And listen, we're talking about pricing, but it's way more than pricing. It's what do you get for that pricing? What does the offer look like? How many concurrent users can you have? Um, I mean, it's, it is an immensely complicated business and they're doing two types of testing. They're doing what I would call this incremental, this fracking testing, where very, very small tweaks in the signup process and what order things come in make huge differences. So they're obsessively testing that, but they are always also doing breakthrough testing where they're making very, very large changes in the program to see if they can have a big step function change in something. Because otherwise, you just increment yourself. You continue to gain, but then someone makes a big step and gets way ahead of you. And I think what you're trying to do is make sure you're doing both at the same time. And what, what was the logic of being such a low price point to start? Well, to start, it wasn't a low price point. When we launched our subscription business, it was $19.95. So very expensive. And partly that's because we had very, very few customers. Partly because we had very, very high prices. So you're trying to find something which you can charge more for than it actually costs you to do it. But to your point, Netflix has a tremendous advantage in its scale. Because what is really happening when you look at what Netflix decides to charge, when you look at what any company decides to charge, is it's now almost all how much are they prepared to spend on content. And if you are having trying to be a low price leader and you have a very small subscription base, you have no money to spend on content. And you're going to lose for that reason. Netflix has an advantage is that with 200 million subscribers, the amount of cash that that throws is tremendous. And that can be put toward content. So 
they can find this balance between a price point which works, but yet generates enough revenue that they can afford to spend dramatically larger amounts on content than anyone else does. And I don't, again, I don't work there now, so I don't, not, don't have my hands on the exact numbers, but I think it's going to be $16 billion this year, $17 billion on content. That's just a remarkable amount. That is a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, what about retention? Um, what tips could you share on how they've managed to increase retention of members and lifetime client value? So it fundamentally that it's a content game now. I mentioned before that one of Netflix's big advantages was that they were a software company and viewed themselves as a software company for so long. But that transition had to take place and it did take place. And I think that crossover was maybe four years ago when they had more employees in Hollywood than they did in Silicon Valley. And the content game is what retention is all about right now. I mean, there's customer service pieces of it, but it's driven by content. And they've recognized that there's two requirements for content. There's acquisition content, which are the big tentpole blockbuster, not capital B, but blockbuster uh, major releases because those generate the buzz. Everyone's talking about Tiger King. Have you seen Tiger King? And oh, <laughs> shit, I guess I have to subscribe to Netflix so I can not know what everyone's talking about with Tiger King. So there's big, or squid games, big, big things that everybody sees. But however, once you've acquired someone, to your point, you have to continually feed them. They have to always feel they have something great to watch. That's the content piece. And Netflix has a very interesting formula where essentially it doesn't all need to be squid game, massive uh, release things that everyone sees because all of us are different. And something can be watched by a small number of people as long as the price to make that content is commensurate with the number of people watching it. So again, you're looking for a simple one-word answer how they manage retention. So the simple one-word answer is content. But once you get beyond that, it's a very, very complicated formula for always ensuring people have something to watch that they want to watch. One last piece on this is from the beginning, from day one, we recognized we could not be focused on being a DVD business we could not be focused on being a streaming business. We had to be focused on being a connecting people with great stories business. That's what Netflix has been focused on since April 14th, 1998, and they've never stopped. And retention fundamentally is having people feel that that fills that place for them of helping connect them with good content. And Netflix competes you know, they don't necessarily see themselves competing, uh, you know, with Amazon or with Apple or with Disney. Uh, you know, Reed Hastings jokes that they compete with sleep. They compete with TikTok. They compete with um, Fortnite. They compete with all the ways people choose to spend their time. And if you're not delivering value for how someone wants to spend their time, uh, you're not going to retain your customers. Mark, I've had a bit of an epiphany here. This has been a great little piece there. Thank you. And I just want to share it with everyone because, like I said, lots of my community either have or want to start their own subscription model. 
And um, in the creator economy, that's easier than ever. You can just set up on Facebook supporters or Patreon or Kajabi or somewhere like that. But what you said about having that flagship piece that gets everyone talking and then you have the consistent ongoing content. Well, about three or four times a year, I'll do a challenge, a, a 10x your social media following or a make cash challenge. And I might get one sixth total of my overall user base join announcing that challenge. You know, I might get 500 to 1,000 out of 6,000 or something like that. And I hadn't really thought it's because that's the thing that creates the buzz that everyone wants to join for. And then, of course, after that, once they're in, they'll stay if the content is good. I'll tell you something with – yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was going to say how right you are. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, I always – the analogy for me is it's like – it's like I was a geology major, so this is – pardon me for this geeky answer. But it's like geologic processes, which is that 99% of the movement takes place in 1% of the time in these big cataclysmic events. You know, my, my – um, I, I know someone who is pretty active on TikTok, pretty successful on TikTok. And TikTok is one of those things where you don't get – uh, 3 million views every time you post something. You get something with 3 million views every 10 times you post something. But all the new subscribers, all the new followers, pardon me, usually follow those breakthrough pieces. And then the rest is what keeps people from unsubscribing, unfollowing. And so you need to have the occasional genius and then you need to have enough to keep people around. So I'm just echoing exactly what you said. Yeah, I, I hope everyone listening is really uh, getting these um, real nuggets of information. I posted a video on TikTok. It's just a 15-second mindset hack, and it had 3.7 million views and got me 50,000 of my 115,000 followers. So, again, exactly what you said. And, and you're like, why can't every video go viral? What's wrong with me? I've lost it. But it's just not the reality, is it? And it's not, it's also not the requirement because if you are sitting there going every day, I have the pressure to come up with something which is so incredibly brilliant. It's going to get me 50,000. You're, you're never going to post or you're even worse. You're going to edit yourself. You're going to be taking six hours of no, you know, my friend Gary V just says, basically stop thinking about the quality, just do something. And yes, occasionally you'll have the genius breakthrough, but overthinking it is as bad as underthinking it. Yeah, this is great. Thanks, Mark. What do you think of these subscription sites like Patreon and OnlyFans? Oh, I think it's fantastic. They're performing the role that Amazon Web Services provided for Netflix and streaming, which is that it allows the creators to focus on creating and not have to spend their time how am I going to track? How am I going to take credit cards? How am I going to mod? Let someone else who can become an expert in the mechanisms of managing your subscribers, manage your subscribers. It lets you focus on the thing that you're best at. It's a tremendously empowering thing because it opens up the gates to now the barriers to being a creator is, can I create? Not, do I have access to ways to monetize this? Do I, can I take credit cards? It's out of your hands now. You can do the thing you do best. Yeah, I had my own site um, built by a developer that works for me, and there's reasons for that. But now all you have to do is log in and set up an account on Patreon. I believe you don't have to put money down. I believe they take 12% of the subscriber. That might change over time a little bit. 
And it's essentially a white labeled site that you can just upload content to really easily. And I think that I agree with you. I think it's great for the creator because it moves all the friction of the hard stuff away from them. So just, you're saying pod, pod, if you're a podcaster, you can you know, do that on Spotify. If you have blogs, there are sites which allow you to monetize your writing. I mean, it's really a, 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 really a powerful thing. Actually, interesting, Mark, on, on that random note about Spotify. I saw they're doing a collaboration with TikTok and they're offering four months subscription free. I think it's fantastic. I think Spotify is actually playing this brilliantly in that they're taking a position they had, they were dominant in, which of course I would say is music streaming, and recognizing that they can use their expertise to begin incorporating other forms of content. And I think what we saw with, with Joe Rogan and, and the pod, integrating podcasting into the platform, really powerful. And in this way, they're now beginning to form these alliances which are visual, which I think uh, is a really big signal of what I think Spotify's aspirations might uh, ultimately be. Yeah, I mean, they've got some money, haven't they? They were dumping hundreds of millions into these podcaster creators. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I, listen. I, one thing I always appreciate is boldness, and I certainly would uh, would characterize what they're doing as being bold. I think they overpaid for paying a hundred million for the rights to Joe Rogan's show. No, not at all. Um, I think what that did as positioning them and creating the buzz that we are a podcasting platform as well. At a time when podcasting has uh, been exploding, was an extremely smart move. This is very similar to the move that Sirius, you know, satellite radio, did when they signed on Howard Stern. And at the time, that was also approximately a hundred million dollar deal. And at the time, people said this is ridiculous. But you looked then at the number of subscriptions that that drove for Sirius, and um, paid off very, very handsomely for them. And I think you'll see, you're seeing the exact same thing with Spotify. Mark, let's say you were Netflix competitor looking to disrupt them. How would you do that? Uh, what I do is I call it kind of the 1% rule, which is I take, when I look at other industries that I'm thinking about or that people that I'm working with are thinking about, if you go after them with the thing they do well, but this is for example, let's use a Salesforce. Okay, Salesforce is a $25 billion revenue business. A tremendous range of products and services. Now you kind of want to go after Salesforce. Now, if you want to go after a CRM, well, uh, good luck with that. Because they will defend that to the death and they will use their brand and their money and their power to quickly crush you. But in a $25 billion revenue business, there are some aspects of that which are about 1% of the business. So a $250 million product, a $250 million service, which is 1% of theirs, pretty close to the, we don't really give a shit about that. We've been thinking about closing it down anyway. But for the person coming after them, going after a $250 million product category is pretty compelling. So if I was going after Netflix, I'd look very, very carefully at, is there some aspect, some area of their business, which is small enough that to them, they won't prioritize that. They are not willing to compromise other things they're doing to defend this area. 
and I'd attack there. And I'd say, I can do it better than Netflix because I'm willing to spend 100% of my time doing it. Whereas Netflix is going to spend less than 1% of their time doing it. Mark, how we finish modern day interviews now. I remember back in the day when I started podcasting six years ago, I'd just have really long conversations because it was all about long form. And now we do 15 second Q&A quickfire at the end so we can repurpose for TikTok and Instagram reels and short form. So if you're game in a moment, I'll, I'll ask you eight questions for a, a 15 second answer for each. Um, but just before that, Mark, can you tell us what projects you're personally working on now and what you're excited about? Well, a couple of things, but the, probably the main one that I'm focused on right now is my podcast, which is also called That Will Never Work, like my book was called. Um, and it's somewhat different because I'm not interviewing celebrity entrepreneurs. I'm not doing a version of uh, startup stories. I'm actually letting people have a window into a mentoring session that I'm doing with an early stage entrepreneur. Um, and I think they're really, really fun. It's a chance for people to recognize they're not alone. Other people have the same issues. It's a chance for people to actually get advice, which is broadly applicable. And some of the people I speak to are actually pretty out there and, and pretty fun. But I'm really right now focused on um, on the podcast, as well as all my myriad of, as you mentioned, not everyone has the attention span for a 30-minute podcast. And so I cut it up. You can get it in the 30-second TikToks, or you can get it on LinkedIn, Instagram, et cetera. So let's just quickly shout them out. Now, everyone listening and watching across the world, all make right. sure you go and get these. So um, could you name the, the, the book behind you, That Will Never Work? And then that is the podcast, yeah. And then the podcast is the same title. That will never work. We'll put links in the show notes. We'll put links in in the chat, etc. So I just encourage everyone to go and, and grab that. Um, I know you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur, Mark, and you you love starting up. So I'd just say to everyone, if you want a bit more um, of Mark's full history and story, we did do a deep dive conversation on our disruptive entrepreneur episode. We'll also share that link with you. So, Mark, are you ready for the quick fire Q&A? 15 second TikToks or less. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all set. I, I'm, just, I'm just delighted you didn't ask me to take my shirt off and dance. So I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Or put some leggings on. <laughs> right. What would your Netflix stock be worth today if you hadn't have exited? <laughs> I very purposefully don't let myself think about that to avoid myself having a having an aneurysm, but certainly it would have yes. been up in the many billions of dollars. But I'm wow. uh, I'm very 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 happy with how my life has worked out. Uh, zero regrets. Well, if it, if it makes you feel better, Mark, um, I interviewed Mark, um, Nolan Bushnell, uh, you know, founder of Atari. Sure. And Steve Jobs offered him half of Apple for fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think all of us who've been around Silicon Valley for a long time have plenty of stories uh, about missed opportunities. Mark, how big do you think Netflix can get? I think Netflix is still at the beginning. Uh, you know, Netflix has two hundred million subscribers, but uh, you know, YouTube, uh, you know, a billion, uh, Facebook, billions. I mean, basically, the addressable market is uh, smartphones, um, and that is a huge, um, a huge number. Uh, 
I mean, only recently in the last year and a half have people recognized that streaming is the way people want to consume content. And what we're seeing now is that rolling out um, throughout the world. So I think Netflix is a long way, uh, a long road in front of it. Mark, do you think Netflix stock is undervalued or overpriced? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's probably the right, it's, I don't know. Who knows? The I don't, that stock market is a really poor indication of a company's prospects. I've, I've trained myself never to look at the day-to-day stuff because it's meaningless. It's, it's, it's beauty contest voting, not underlying value. Sorry. Mark, what? That's okay. No, I like an honest answer. It was a it was a rubbish question. I'm always okay with owning rubbish questions. Yeah, garbage question, garbage answer. <laughs> it's true. Good feedback. But remember, we, we always have to test, don't we, Mark? We have to fail frequently. Yes, exactly. Mark, what could bring Netflix down? What could be their potential downfall? Uh, the thing that could bring Netflix down is people all of a sudden deciding that they don't want to be watching filmed entertainment. But I think Netflix is reacting to that in many ways. I mean, they have announced that they're going to be doing some gaming. Um, they have, they're doing things that I never expected Netflix to do because they're recognizing that they are competing, not necessarily with Disney or Amazon, but with sleep. Mark, Squid Game was huge on Netflix. What do you think of Squid Game? Was it a bit explicit and violent? Um, I found it highly entertaining. And what I think Squid Games really showed is that content, good content is universal, that it is not specific to a Korean market, that all of us can find something compelling, a hero to root for, a villain, a great story. Um, And I thought Squid Games was a great example of that. Mark, what's the biggest mistake Netflix made in its journey? Netflix has made thousands of mistakes, hundreds of thousands of mistakes. And it's because from the very beginning, Netflix has been constantly trying things. And the very definition of trying means you don't quite know how it's going to turn out. And it's their willingness to always be trying things, willing to make those thousands of mistakes that gives them the confidence and the insights of which direction to eventually go. Netflix will continue to make mistakes, but the question is, will they learn from them? And the answer is absolutely yes. Mark, could you share a 15 second um, hack for mental strength? One of the things I've always been guided by is the truth that if you don't know what you want, you're extremely unlikely to get it. And that it really requires stepping back and saying, what's important? What am I trying to accomplish? So that you can allocate the great percentage of your focus and attention to that thing and not be distracted by all the other day-to-day miscellaneous in your life. Mark, I've had so much fun. I want to thank you so much (laughs) again for doing this for a second time. Everyone listening, make sure you go and get Mark's book, That Will Never Work. And also subscribe to his podcast. That will never work. I look forward to listening. Um, Do you mentor um, just one entrepreneur on that? Or do you have series where you mentor other entrepreneurs? It's interesting. I still have people that I mentor one-on-one, a handful of those, because it's very time consuming. But really what I'm trying to do is this mentorship at scale. It is what the book was about. It's what the podcast is for. It's why I continue to write and publish articles on my blog. All of these things are trying to share all the tips and tricks and secrets I've learned as an entrepreneur. So uh, I'm trying every way I can to get people off their ass, to start, to try, Uh, to grow and to experiment.
Thanks, Mark. And what's your social media handles? What's the username so we can follow you on TikTok, Instagram, etc.? So the best place to start is markrandolph.com. For those of you younger, that's actually a website on the internet, if you remember those things. <laughs> uh, and from there, you'll actually find links to where you can find me on Instagram at that will never work. Uh, and most of them are that one and Twitter that, at MB Randolph. You'll find them all there. Rather rattle them all off here. Thanks, Mark. And just to let everyone know, it's Mark with a C. Um, yes, and that's good. Thank you. With a PH. Just, you never know. <laughs> no, I should have said that. You're absolutely right. I take it for granted. Mark, thanks so much. This has been so much fun. I think you're a very inspiring entrepreneur. I think you've got an amazing story. Um, and I'm so grateful that you chose to uh, do this interview with us. Uh, it was a pleasure. And thanks again. Always fun being with you. 